People redesign cars, airplanes, appliances, even our apps get redesigned. And we're going to talk today about finishing well, finishing well. Now, let me start with this. In a race or in a marriage or in life, generally what matters most isn't how you start, it's how you finish. That's a fact. So, you can't really design your life well unless you start with the end in mind. So in this series called Redesigning Your Life, two weeks ago we talked about our need for patience. God doesn't wear a watch. We're, a delay doesn't mean denial. And we learn to, to be patient people, that if he's planned it, if he's promised it, it'll come to pass. I don't care if you're 100 years old and he says you're going to have a baby, you're going to have a baby. Then we spoke on God's original design by looking at Adam. This week, I want to look at a man in the Bible named Solomon and how he designed his life and what it has to teach us about finishing well. Nobody, nobody in life gets to design how you start out. We were born who we are with whoever had us, wherever we happened to be, right? You didn't have any control over that. And one of the lessons we can learn from Solomon is that you can come from a messed up family and still be greatly used by God. How many of you came from an imperfect family? Yeah, most everybody, pretty much. I'll bet hardly anybody's story could be worse than Solomon's. So to understand his story, you have to go back to the start. His oldest half-brother, Amnon, had violated their half-sister, and when their father David did nothing about it, Amnon was killed by their second oldest brother named Absalom. Absalom wanted to take the throne away from his father David, so he was killed by David's general, Joab. David was devastated, and he cried out, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you. Well, that's actually what Absalom wanted, for David to die instead of him. And then thirdly, Adonijah, when another son, was hyper-ambitious. And David is still king, but now he's growing old. And Adonijah put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. Looked like North Korea's Kim Jong-un with everybody running in front. Do you ever see those videos? Do you ever see anything? Okay. You talk about a Hollywood entourage. This guy had it. And by way of explanation of why his son would want to do this to his dad, his father never rebuked him. Never, never said anything, not even raping the half-sister. Why do you behave like you do? David apparently was a passive father. Now, if you're a parent, a really good question to ask your kids sometimes is, hey, why do you behave like you do? Well, David didn't do it, and everybody paid a big price. Meanwhile, Solomon was the child of David and another woman, Bathsheba. You couldn't script this, folks. Bathsheba had been taken by David in adultery. David had her first husband, killed on the battlefield. What a nice guy. Put him on the dash. I'm sure he has some good marriage seminar CDs to watch. It turned out that apparently David had promised Bathsheba Solomon was going to be king, but now it's really clear that if Adonijah becomes king, Adonijah will kill his half-brother Solomon, so Solomon kills Adonijah first. Lord help us. A, a little review now. Watch this. Here's the nutshell. 
David's first son is killed by his second son. The second son is killed by David's general Joab, who David, with his dying breath, left instructions to be killed. The third son, Adonijah, is killed by David's son, Solomon. Does anybody have a family worse than that one? Not a chance. And by the way, if you're ever tempted to look at our current political situation and think things could never get worse than this, oh yes, they were definitely worse back then. Finally, Solomon is named king. He consolidates his power. Solomon is young and handsome and energetic and devoted. And one day he goes to worship God and God appears to him in a dream. And God says, Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. How'd you like to get that? Amazing, huh? So an amazing offer. Solomon makes his request. He begins by thanking God for his goodness. He says, quote, you have shown great kindness to your servant. You have made your servant king in place of my father, David. So it's really interesting language here. Solomon is a king, but he describes himself to God as a servant who is a king. Then comes Solomon's request. He says, the challenge of being the king of this nation is going to just overwhelm me. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Pretty good prayer. And God's pretty well pleased. And God says to Solomon, you could have asked me for anything. You could have asked for yourself riches and long life and glory and honor. But instead, you asked for wisdom to help serve my people. Okay, Sparky, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to throw in wealth and honor and a long life. Solomon was very wise. Immediately after this comes a famous moment when two women come before him. They're both prostitutes. Both claim to be the mother of a little baby. They each demand custody. Solomon thinks about it and he tells them what he's going to do. Cut the baby in half and give each mother a half. One of them immediately cries out, don't do that. Give the baby to the other woman. Just let the baby live. And Solomon knows that's the real mother and gives the baby to her. Now, the reason the text tells us their occupation is prostitution is that in the ancient world, prostitutes were on the bottom of the ladder, least likely to get any justice at all. So no little girl grew up hoping to enter that occupation, and I don't think anybody does today. They lived at risk, and here's a king who cares about them. Here's a king who will bring justice and wisdom to those least likely to receive it. He really is living like a servant, this king. And we're told the nation holds him in awe. Words about what a remarkable guy Solomon is starts getting around. This is 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 33. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan, the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Kalokol, and Darda, the sons of Maho. Now that's like ancient Near East intellectual trash talk. Our smart guy is way smarter than your smart guy. And he was. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. I told Nate, you got a ways to go, buddy. Come on. He spoke about plant life from the cedars of Lebanon to hyssop that springs out of the wall. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. He just knew so much. He was so famous for his wisdom that other rulers came to check him out. 
We're told when the queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, she came to test him with some hard questions, but he passed with flying colors. Solomon answered all of her questions, and nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. Now, if you've ever heard in our culture today mansplaining, that's where a man tries to impress a woman by explaining things to her. But it all, it all begins with Solomon. Now, as you might imagine, with his wisdom came great honor, great recognition, great power, great wealth, and great glory. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings on the earth. He had a fleet of trading ships at sea with ships of Hiram. Once every three years, it returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, and baboons. Solomon had so much gold, he doesn't even know what to do with it. All of his goblets are made of gold. The horse stable hinges are gold. But my favorite part is the baboons. What are you going to do with a ship full of baboons? And he's got them. It's a way of saying there was unprecedented prosperity in Israel. We're told the people ate and drank and were happy, especially Solomon. Take a look at what this guy in his court consumed every day. Solomon's daily provisions were 10 head of stall-fed cattle, organic, non-antibiotic injection, <laughs> 20, 20 head of pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, goats, as well as deer and gazelles and roebucks and choice fowl. This man is clearly not a vegetarian. There was no tofu, no kale salad. Now, of course, it takes a lot of money to pay for all this, and we're told the taxation system in Israel was regarded as a heavy burden on the people. And that seems a little odd for a servant king to live like that. On the other hand, Solomon was finally able to build the temple of the Lord. His father David had laid the money aside, had secured the, the materials, and David had so badly wanted to build it. If you ever read through the text, it gives a lot of details about how lavish the building materials were for God's temple. And the point of the detail is not so the reader could rebuild it. It was so the reader would go, wow, look at Solomon. Wow, isn't he something? Solomon's prayer to dedicate the temple has got to be a spiritual masterpiece of wisdom. You ought to read it. Then there's the tiniest little detail. Hang on. We're told the temple was so fabulous, Solomon spent seven years building it. Then in the very next verse, it says it took Solomon 13 years to complete the construction of his palace. So the writer doesn't comment on it. He doesn't tell us how we're supposed to evaluate that. Biblical stories are often subtle. The writer just notes that Solomon spent twice as much time doing something for his own glory than doing something for God. The temple was built, of course, to show Israel's devotion to God. Other nations had lots of temples because they had lots of gods and many idols. Israel was unique in the Middle East in one regard. It had one temple because it had one God. Solomon built the temple. However, here's the verse. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David. And then this little word, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. That's in 1 Kings 3, verse 3. It's a tiny little word, except. Solomon showed his love for the Lord, except. He obeyed, he followed, he walked, except. Now the except here has to do with idolatries. Making space in high places meant making space for worship of other gods and idols. 
So I was kind of wondering if somebody was describing your life or mine, what might your accept or mine look like? Well, well, you know, Rick, he showed his love for the Lord by walking according to God's instructions, except with his money, or except in his lack of action on behalf of the poor, or except in his sex life, or except for the anger and bitterness he would just indulge, or except for unreconciled relationships, or except for her use of deceit, or except for the way she would judge other people, or except for the way she never seriously intended to become a student of God by reading his word, or except for the way he never really intended to become a person marked by love. Except, except, except. Such a dangerous little word. Solomon's life was not marked by a giant no to God, just a little except. I love you, God, <clears throat> except. That's a dangerous word. Now, other than that, Solomon did amazing things with his wisdom. He built the temple. He wowed the world. He had all the gold, collected baboons. He ate like a king. He was the smartest guy in the room. In fact, he built the room, except. Then we come to see the last chapter in 1 Kings that describes Solomon's life. This is chapter 11. And the writer has chronicled so many impressive achievements, this remarkable resume, this amazing life. And then he adds this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart towards other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father was. That little except that was there earlier we read never went away. It just grew and grew and grew until it turned into a great big, however, there's this little cycle. Wisdom will sometimes lead to success, which leads to prosperity, which leads to complacency and ego, which leads away from the very wisdom that started it all. Solomon was very wise. Solomon got everything he ever wanted, but he ended up doing the very thing that would lead him away from the God who gave him the wisdom, and Solomon knew he was wrong. Solomon understood God's instruction. Solomon was aware of the consequences. However, 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 Solomon loved many foreign women. How many? Very many, the text says. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. I was thinking, yeah, 700 women will do that. <laughs> the smartest guy in the world, and he gets married like a thousand times. Really? It says he followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon, this wise guy, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. A little background for why this stuff is serious. Ashtaroth was the mistress of the god Baal. People in the ancient Middle East often practiced what was called sympathetic magic, where human beings would do things on earth to try to get their gods to do the same thing for them. With Ashtaroth, they would often be involved in sacred temple prostitution. Young women or young boys would be offered up to do this to get gods to make the earth fertile. Molech is called detestable because people would offer their children as a sacrifice. Parents would have their children burned at Molech's altar, and Solomon, oh, wise Solomon, is now part of it. How did he get here? How does that happen to us? Well, there's actually a pretty simple answer, and this hits me and it hits you. There's another force in life beside wisdom. Wisdom is great, it's wonderful, but there's another force 
And if you don't watch it, it will eat wisdom for lunch. Think of them as two roads, two paths. One path is wisdom. The other path is desire. I can follow either one. Wisdom is a gift from God. The alternative is to just order my life around desire. Now, let me say it's a good thing. We do have desire. God thought up desire. You couldn't live a day if you didn't naturally desire to do better or, or do things like eat or breathe or move or be with other people. But desire is dangerous because if it's not tamed, it can take over your life. Desire by its nature is obsessive. When I desire something and that desire gets really strong, I start to feel like I got to have it. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't think of anything that would, would or should get in the way of it. Desire asks the question, what do I want? Look at a child with a cookie or a donut. They just want the donut. Now you try as a parent to appeal to wisdom. Billy, it's not good for you, You're, but your body needs protein. Your body needs vitamins. Sugar and fat and lard are not nutritious. They will not make you healthy, Billy. They will not make you strong, which is what you want. Does that convince Billy? Oh, no, no. But I want it. I must have it. This donut will make me happy forever. Give me this donut or I'll make you miserable. Give me this donut. I will never ask for anything again. Oh, really? See, desire is that way on all of us. And desire is not always connected to what is good. In Ephesians chapter 4, St. Paul talks about deceitful desires. It's an interesting phrase. Desire is deceitful because in the moment it makes me think, I, if I just had what I want so bad, I'd be happy forever. It's deceiving me, see? But, of course, I wouldn't. Desire alone always narrows my thinking because it wants my mind to focus just on this desire. Now, in our day, it's often thought that desire alone can tell what is good. Love which ought to be directed towards what is good, gets confused with my desire. If I desire something, I'll say I love it. And maybe the most famous commercial song of all time, I'm going really low here, went like this. If you know it, feel free to sing along. Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. Anybody ever heard that? Last night, everybody had. This is what I truly want to be. Jim Williams taught me this. For if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, everyone would be in love with me. Really? Really? Everybody would be in love with you if you were an Oscar Mayer wiener. Think about that song for a moment. That's got to be the dumbest song in the entire world. And we all know it. Here's the truth. If you were a hot dog, even if you were a great hot dog, everybody would not be in love with you. They want to eat you. If somebody loves you, they don't put you on a grill, burn you, cut you in half longitudinal, and then put you on a bun, smear you with mustard, and then eat you. That's not love. That's desire, lust. Desire always asks, what do I want? If I desire illicit sexual gratification, there's a bunch of thoughts I won't think. As desire gets stronger, I won't think, how would my spouse feel if I do this? How would my kids feel if I do this? What will it do to my conscience? What will it do to my relationship with God or my friends? Desire always narrows your thinking, and it shuts out all kinds of thoughts of wisdom that could interfere with its gratification, and often you're not even aware of it. 
It does this to really smart people. A really smart, rich, powerful guy recently died in prison from suicide. You've all heard about it. Jeffrey Epstein owned an island, disgraced by how he handled sexual desire. And I'll promise you, in those countless moments, desire kept a hundred thoughts out of his mind that could have saved him. So sad. That force, that power, and that potential are in every one of us. I can design my life around just desire. What do I want? Or I can design my life around wisdom. Here's what wisdom asks. What is good here? What is the best? Desire always narrows your thinking or focus. Wisdom always broadens it so you can quite calmly look at every option, consider every consequence, and choose what is best. That's why, for example, the writer of the book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom for crying out loud, you should ask God. He gives it to you liberally. That's what God says. So to wisdom, whether I happen to get what I happen to want right now is of relatively little importance because I've taken my stand on devoting my life to God, His purpose and will, and what is best for me, and I'm quite willing to put up with an unfulfilled desire. I will not actually, it, it won't kill me if I deny myself some desire that I have in the service of a much higher and nobler life. Ironically, wisdom is what Solomon started out asking for. See, he said he wanted a discerning heart to be able to distinguish right from wrong so he wouldn't be driven by impulses. Let me pause a minute. Any of you ever had any strong desire? Wives? Husbands? I want to buy that. If I could have that, that screen, that size TV at that price, I'd love to stay home and watch football all the time. I know it's going to be tight on our budget, but I want it. <laughs> it may not be best for me, but I want it. Or some illicit relationship. I want it. It'll make me happy. Yeah, till you get to court. Uh, yeah. And then you got kids to think about, and then nobody remembers all the good things you did. They only remember what you did wrong. When you use some names, all you, you don't think about any good things they did. When you say the word Nixon, you think of Watergate, right? I mean, you don't think about anything that was done good. You do that with different people, different leaders, it marks you. It really does. Yes, God's a God of forgiveness, of course, but people don't. Think about the consequences of your choice. And for God's sake, I don't want to hurt my children either. I don't want my children to have three different daddies. Do you? I mean, if you've got that right now, you don't have to continue it. You can say, this stops with me. What I did, my behavior was not smart. I can admit it. It wasn't smart. It wasn't wise. It wasn't best. It wasn't God's will. I repent of that. And today I, I, I put a stake in the ground. That's going to be different. And every believer in here can do that. You don't have to be a prisoner of your past. And that, that impulse, my impulsive will, out of control, runs on desire. It doesn't ask what's right or wrong. It just says, my God, I want that Lamborghini. I don't, I don't know. I may rob a bank to get it. It doesn't think about the consequences, right? I want what I want. In a well-designed life, it gives way to a reflective will that doesn't just ask, what do I want? But what's good? What would love do? What is best? So when you see that phrase in the Bible, Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. You have to put the word loved in scare quotes. He did not will their good, or he wouldn't have stuck them in his harem like cattle. 
See, what Solomon did was desire, lust, many foreign women. And since he was king and handsome and smart and rich and a really smart guy, who's going to stop him? What would this do to his heart? What would this do to his devotion to God? What would this do to his nation? What would this do to his kids? What would this do to the women themselves? He's a really smart guy, Solomon. But those were questions that never occurred to his really, really smart mind. And he got older, but he didn't get wiser. And he died a foolish old man. He started out really well, but he didn't finish very well. Israel would have to keep looking for somebody else until one day another man stepped onto the stage of human history who was also famous for his wisdom, who said he was also a king, but lived as a servant. And one of the most remarkable titles Jesus ever gave himself was in Matthew chapter 12 when he said to his people, and now someone greater than Solomon is here. And of course, anybody who heard that at the time would have laughed. Really? This obscure carpenter who would become a penniless rabbi and did not have a place to lay his head while Solomon took 13 years to build his palace with ships full of baboons and every gold goblet made of gold? Really? Now, 2,000 years later, we know. Yep, really, really, a greater than Solomon. Here is wisdom. If you've ever worried about designing your life, Look at the lilies of the field, Jesus says. They don't toil, they don't spin, their resumes don't look so great, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was dressed like one of these. And nobody ever finished like Jesus. Love and suffering to the end on a cross. Not my will, thy will be done. Crying out, it is finished. Desire in Jesus was, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. There's wisdom. And there's desire. You must let wisdom eat your desire for lunch. You must let that desire be checked by wisdom. And my honest opinion, when it's a big deal, I think that's where a couple of friends around you can give you a little wisdom. You know, when you got the hots, that's not a good time for you to be making a decision. Calm down. And let's give it. Even anger. Calm down. And get some friends around you to bring peace, clarity, focus, and wisdom and the suffering was finished on the cross but the glory ah that was just starting we should all be thinking a lot about finishing well i'm looking with the end in mind jesus said one time that if you design your life right if you live it in trust as his disciple when it's over you'll stand before god and god almighty will say well done good and faithful servant I'd rather get a well done from Jesus than an Oscar or a Golden Globe. And I hope you would as well. Yeah. Did I do, to the best of my ability, what you made me or called me to do? I know this. There is no other end. There is no other aim. There is no other purpose worth designing your life around. How do you want to finish? What is your life centered on? Go for the well done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody in this room who needs some wisdom right now. I pray for everybody facing a difficult choice about their work or their money or a relationship in their family or with a habit or with a secret or with their time. God, it's so easy for us to spend our whole lives just dreaming about building our palace. 
Help us to aim at building something better. I pray you would give generously wisdom to anybody who needs it. Help us, God, always keep clearly before us that what we live for are words from you that will surely come. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not perfect servant, but a good and faithful servant. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.